Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Veterans and Academics. Today on this great episode, we have Mr. Michael Smith with us, soon to be Dr. Michael Smith with us. And uh, he's going to tell you a little bit about himself. And go ahead, Michael, tell us, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, sir. Uh, thank you for having me, Ernest. Uh, Dr. McLeese, uh, if, if I'm not butchering your name. Uh, yeah, so my name is Michael Smith. And uh, I would describe myself uh, in a couple of bullet points. I'd say I'm an innovative leader. I'm a researcher. I'm a passionate runner. And I'm just someone, someone that loves to help other people. And uh, if you want to know more about me, I'm happy to expound upon those things. But uh, that's, that's a little bit about who I am. Awesome. Well, perfect. And that's, that's exactly why we have you here today so we can learn more and get you to talk about those things and I, i'm really excited about all those things except for the running part <laughs> Just kidding. Most, most people don't want to run I, I get it i get it <laughs> um awesome so so we're going to get into this and we're going to get into your background your time in the military and we're going to get into uh some of your research which i'm excited for you to talk about and, um, but first I want you to, to help us out. So with your background in the military and, you know, your, your long path to education and, and working on your doctorate right now, during this time, what is something that you have seen or you see that veterans do well in higher education? Yeah, that's a good question. And listen to some other folks that have talked about it. I would, I would echo what they say. I would also say um, what, from my experience working with vets uh, as they transition out, uh, so I, I directed a Veterans Upward Bound for a few years, and that was just a humbling and great experience. And the, the things that I took away is a lot of individuals considered it their job. So as they're leaving, they considered, I'm going to school and this is my job. And they took it very professionally. So I would say, uh, that, as well as just being very passionate, uh, individuals just passionate about life, and they want to share their passion. And uh, those two things I saw, uh, not from every single person that I, I worked with, uh, but quite a few individuals. I would say those are things, uh, it would be hard to argue that veterans are, are, are not doing well in those areas. Right, right. Excellent. Okay. And, you know, the, the job part is something I can definitely identify with because that is something that came out of my mouth as an undergraduate. I would tell people like, I'm going to the library right now. These are my hours from nine to five, you know, and, and usually longer, but that's how I felt. I felt like that was phase two and uh, I was getting some type of income, even if it wasn't, you know, big baller status, I was getting something to, to live off of. So it was my job. And, you know, there's been, there's been veterans that I've met who've said those exact words to me too. You know, I treat this like my job. And I, I think that's a really interesting approach because I personally have never heard that from any other populations, you know? So cool. So awesome. So Michael, then on the flip side of this question, what do you what do you see or what have you seen that veterans could improve upon in higher education? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, a question that maybe we don't like to answer because maybe it makes us look bad. You know, we, we always want to look dress right dress or you know, put our best foot forward. But I would say, you know, and I'm going to borrow something from a researcher that I just saw a post on LinkedIn today. Um, we may not do a great job as we're getting out and, and getting into to college uh, and during that transition, taking what's called a cheetah pause. And a cheetah pause is essentially a way of thinking, we're, we're just, we wanna go a million miles an hour. We got all these things that we gotta do. We gotta catch up, you know, we gotta, you know, we gotta get ahead. And 
So what's why it's called a cheetah pause is obviously cheetahs run really fast, but they also decelerate very, very quickly as well. And so that actually allows them to be very agile and pivot when pivoting is necessary. That's how they catch the prey. And so uh, in, in the army anyways, we, we had a training phrase called slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And, and maybe other people use that as well. And I think sometimes we're such in such a hurry to catch up and to get ahead that we might not have a clear strategy or goal in mind of where we want to end up. And uh, so I would say if, if there's something I could uh, just advocate for, it's just uh, working with others, bringing in folks, whether it be folks you've served with, family members, or mentors that if you don't have one, find one. But uh, just talk with them about what your plan is. And maybe you don't have a plan in place. Maybe they don't have a plan in place yet, and that's okay. But the more you can have that clarity up front, it's going to help you out in the long term. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I like that you mentioned that, you know, um, because that, that comes up on this podcast a lot of people feeling from like they're behind when they leave the military and they've got to catch up. And so you're right. I think that does lead to the feeling of I've got to sprint for my next thing, but maybe what somebody has to do is take a moment and assess the situation right? Just like a cheetah would, would look at, you know, their prey and understand their prey before they went running after it. And I think uh, being agile and knowing when to pivot could be huge, right? Because so many times those things in life, we think we're setting out for one thing and then, you know, a door opens and it, we'd be foolish not to take it, you know? Very 100%. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I totally get that. And, uh, you know, in, in today's, uh, civilian career society, it's, it's unlikely we're going to have that one golden career. Uh, some people that might happen, but we have to have that ability to make those pivots when the pivots are necessary. It's just, just how life is. And we may, may not necessarily be used to that, you know, military, you can change occupations and those sorts of things, but that, that's still within the same company organization. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a different animal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. It's, it's not uh, the, the post-industrial age anymore where somebody works at a company their whole life. I mean, the reality is we're, we're all going to work several places, um, if not even more than that over the course of our life. So always being on the lookout and always being ready to pivot uh, can really make someone's life a lot easier. Awesome, Michael. Very insightful, sir. Very, very insightful. Now let's let's hear about you, sir. Uh, tell me, tell me about you. Tell me about when you were thinking about going into the military. What was your motivation uh, for going into the military? You know, the the road from the military to a doctorate in education is is a you know, there's a lot of space in between there. So what was your motivation to go in the military? What did you do in the military? And then what was your time like while you were serving? Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of questions there, but I'll try to answer them uh, as well as I can. I've got the easy job. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, what, what was my motivation to join? Uh, really, I had, there was two basic and fundamental reasons why I wanted to join the military. The first was, I was able, I was fortunate and able to witness the lasting legacy of my grandfather's service during World War II. Not directly, obviously, but um, back in 2004, um, uh, the Belgian government uh, invited everyone over for the 60th anniversary of the freeing of the country of Belgium uh, from German, uh, German occupation. And so I, I escorted my grandfather who had served in the Battle of the Bulge uh, to, to go and just see what, what was that like? And not only were the, you know, the allies invited, but the Axis uh, folks were invited as well. So we had German soldiers there too. And so getting to see that uh, lasting legacy, and that was through interacting with Belgian citizens, getting to meet uh, nuns that had fed troops and they're, you know, in their, in their mid to late 80s. 
still could recount and, and knew just all the, the, the important um, role that, uh, that even my grandfather had played. Uh, getting to see foxholes that still existed. Um, and then also getting to meet uh, some of the, the, the actual Band of Brother guys from the, the 506 Easy Company. That was really cool. So I would say that uh, that was a big, uh, big reason why I joined to carry on that legacy, that family legacy of service. And I would say the other part would be, I, uh, as I got out of uh, undergrad, I really, I wanted to do more schooling. And I, I just, I, I, I looked around for different opportunities and I knew that uh, military was a viable option. And so that, that was my other motivation. Okay. Uh, enlisted through the student loan repayment program, and I wanted to further my education. And so those those were my uh, those were my signposts along the way. Um, as I joined, so I joined as a chaplain assistant. That was my job. Okay. And uh, I, I did that for four years. Uh, most of the time, I, so I was at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Uh, if anyone's been there, I'm sorry. <laughs> Called the armpit. Uh, armpit of America for a few reasons, but uh, I enjoyed my experience there. Um, uh, got to meet uh, and, and train with folks from all over the world. I collect a lot of valuable skills and I, I was able to challenge myself uh, through, with, through others, uh, physically and mentally. And uh, that prepared me for uh, deployment. So I spent uh, 15 months of my service in, uh, in Baghdad, Iraq. That would have been 2007 just after uh, Thanksgiving to uh, the end of uh, uh, December, 2008. I talk about these as two almost very different experiences in garrison, you know, stateside, very, very different than deployments and combats. And uh, just, uh, just uh, uh, two almost completely different uh, experiences. Uh, so, yeah, so my, my experience, my wartime experience, um, we, our, our uh, brigade was attached to uh, 4th ID okay. out of Fort Hood. And uh, essentially, the, most of what we did is route clearance on the east side of Baghdad and, and then supporting uh, what's known as the surge as well as the assaults on Sadr City in 2007 and 8. So we, there was a lot of action going on in our area and uh, just uh, a lot of stuff that went along with that action. Uh, my primary, well, I had two primary roles, but essentially my primary role at that point shifted from um, setting up for, uh, I, I, I set up for like chapel services and those sorts of things, but essentially I became uh, a slightly trained medic. Uh, essentially, most of what I did was carrying in injured and, and, uh, uh, and wounded and uh, killed uh, folks uh, from their vehicles. Uh, it, was, it was really hard. It was, it was a difficult thing to uh, experience. Um, and it, it was even more difficult than to work with folks that had to go back out and do route clearance. That was really hard. You know, so the, some of the lasting memories that I have of that time I'll remember the first day we stepped foot on our base, on our forward operating base, we were um, taking over for the 82nd Airborne. And those, those men and women, they, they were expecting to be there for six months and they ended up being there for 15 months to a year and a half. And so they were just physically drained, emotionally drained. They were exhausted and they had had some rough experiences, but their expectations were different than what they had, had uh, ended up doing. And, and then the second experience that I'll remember is uh, in 2008, uh, almost, almost to the day. It was April, April 24th of 2008. Uh, we, we experienced a, a lob bomb attack in our base. And that, uh, that was something that uh, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to survive. Um, I barely, very nearly died, but a number of people did die in that experience. And that was pretty traumatizing, pretty traumatic. So uh, I feel very fortunate every single day of my life that I made it through. And some days are better than others, uh, but every day I can think, you know what? It could be worse. And so I keep that with me and, and then think about those that, that didn't make it or made it, but their lives are changed irreparably. And uh, so I, I think about those things often. Com yeah, completely imaginable, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, 
I think especially, so if, if you don't mind, I, I think what's interesting here, especially is your role. Uh, I would, I would imagine uh, I've never been a chaplain's assistant, but I would imagine that in these situations that you just described, especially, um, you probably were in a position where people were, you know, seeking comfort from you and seeking advice and kind of a combination of these things, and then maybe doing it at a time uh, that was extremely stressful. And, and so, what 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 was that like for you? And and, you know, uh, what, what do you think you gleaned from that? Yeah, that's a good question. What was it like for me? It was, it was overwhelming. Uh, it was, yeah. it was overwhelming. Uh, the sense of, uh, you know, d developing and nurturing relationships for two and a half to th not quite, yeah, two and a half years leading up to deployment throughout our companies, uh, working with leadership as well as, you know, from the, the balcony to the basement. Hey, if anyone needs anything, let me know. Uh, and so try to make myself available in those ways too on deployment. You know, I wasn't a mental health counselor, but I was the guy you could just pull aside and say, Hey, I need something. I'm not sleeping. What, what can I do? What, you know, um, all of these sorts of things. And at some point you just didn't have the answers. You didn't have the, the solution or the remedy to the issues that people were dealing with. And that was hard. That was hard, uh, a hard hit to the ego that I didn't have what it took to save someone's life, or I didn't have what it took to bring someone's uh, marriage back together, folks that were uh, you know, deployed for a year and a half, things like that. The, the real hard issues of life became reality real quickly. And so that was, that was something uh, that many of us um, uh, had to, to, to wrestle with. And we may not have had or may not even have now the words really to describe that, uh, those experiences or even how they impact us um, today, 10 years later, 11 years later, depending. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, you know, it's funny that we're, it's, we're getting this intense because this is actually the anniversary of the death of a, a very good friend of mine who died in Iraq 15 years ago to this day. And, uh, you know, I wasn't with him when, when this occurred, but he was someone who was in my unit. I, you know, he came to my unit as a boot and, uh, and, you know, these people and, and these situations and everything, it, it just, it has a way of, of sticking with you. And, and, you know, it's a mixture of, of good and bad and leaves you things to chew on that, um, you know, you'll just, you could unravel forever. You could unravel forever. So Michael, with this intense time, I mean, you, you, you know, had this time of Fort Polk that was probably, like you mentioned, a little less than desirable. And then you had this very, very intense deployment. How, how, what was that like for you? Did you get out of the army right after that deployment? Did you come back to garrison? What was that? What was that time like for you? Yeah, great question. And, and you, you yeah, the intensity of <laughs> that situation is probably not something that everyone talks about openly, but yeah, as far as the, that my transition experience, so got back to, to uh, Fort Polk uh, in December and I had about six months left. So I had finished up my master's degree. I graduated. And, uh, I was the first one in my family to, to, get, to earn a master's degree. So that would have been in, in May awesome. of, the, of 2009. And then I got out uh, a few months early, uh, early release. Uh, so I would have gotten out in uh, July or late July, early August of that year. And my, my experience was I was just excited. I was ready to get back home. And I think a lot of that had to do with that deployment. It was just like, I want to get back to my family. I haven't seen them a long time. Friends, uh, just get back to life. And so, yeah, so my transition experience was, was interesting. It was, I was brimming with confidence. You know, I just got a graduate degree and, you know, military service. You know, I, I thought I, I had the world, uh, you know, um, uh, the world was my oyster, all of those sorts of things. Right. What? 
what I didn't know at the time was how significant uh, the economic downturn depression was in 2008, or, or 2009. So, right. so there was not, not a lot of folks hiring. I, so I had a graduate degree uh, in education. I was really hoping to work in a college university setting or even become like a high school administrator. Uh, what I didn't realize, you know, obviously there wasn't a lot of folks hiring, but the jobs I was applying for, folks found that I was either a combination of overqualified, um, that they didn't want to hire me because I'd leave right away, or I, was, I didn't have enough experience within the field. So those, those two things were somewhat uh, of a challenge for me. But that being said, I did have you know, a graduate degree under my belt already. And so actually at that time, I got a call and uh, that was when I moved out to the Boston area, uh, started working for a, a program, a federal program called Veterans Upward Bound. Uh, it was a newer grant funded program at Suffolk University at that time. And they needed some, some folks to staff it and work there. And so I learned a lot about this great program Awesome. It's been around for a long time. Uh, it's funded through the Federal Department of Education. And uh, that and a few other uh, programs, it's, it's called a TRIO program. So back in its inception, there was three programs, one that uh, funded to serve vets uh, transitioning out, the other to serve high school students. And the, uh, so that's called the traditional upward bound and then the third is the Ronald E. McNair program. And that program, it's, it's named after an African-American uh, uh, NASA uh, astronaut. Uh, he was the first of his kind. Uh, and and uh, it's a doctoral program, a preparatory program. So encouraging minority students to go on to do grad school. So really cool programs, really need to be a part of those programs. And that really helped me to not only identify and understand my my transition out of the military experience but get to see so many other people uh men and women that had served and kind of connect with them and understand oh wow okay so my my story isn't that unique um but i did have the benefit of having already gone to college so that that, that it was it was it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun very cool. Very cool. And man, I tell you what, what a, what a trajectory. I mean, you, you, you have college, you go into the military, uh, part of your military time is very intense, but you get out with a master's degree. That's awesome. The first person in your family. That's awesome. Congratulations. During one of the worst recessions of the modern age, <laughs> I mean, but, but beautifully, I mean, how you made that work and, and, you know, you put yourself to, to a noble cause. And uh, I think that's amazing that you wound up with the upward bound program and that, you know, someone like you would be able to contribute to that so much more than many other people right? Like you were saying, you, you were hearing of other people's experiences. And I think that, you know, that just goes to show that there are certain roles we, we just absolutely have to have veterans in, right? There's, there's no other way to duplicate or to replace. And I think your situation is a great example of that. So, okay, very cool. So during this time, you, you're in this position and you're in Boston and how are things going for you and your transition? And what's this job like? Uh, how's how's that going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, so, I, man, I learned so much, and I'm very grateful for uh, mentors and, and professional relationships in the area. We we had the, the unique circumstance of being close to another uh, program, the Veterans Upper Bound program at UMass Boston. And so uh, Barry Brodsky was the director at the time, really nice man. And, uh, you know, he took us under his wing and he kind of showed us the ropes of what this program should look like. Um, and then just learned a lot about uh, curriculum development design, learned a lot about uh, academic assessment, uh, learned a lot about working with faculty. And, you know, there was, there was just a lot of stuff there that it started to feel like I, I belonged. I, I felt like this is this is a great uh, setting. Um, this this is this helps me to understand and, and make sense of, and also uh, 
use the experiences I've been through. Just like you, you mentioned, you know, I, I could draw on my, my own personal experience and share that with folks and then, and then get to work, meaning I could help them to set forth their own plan. Uh, one story I'll share, one, one student, uh, I'll share his first name. His name was Jason. And this, this, this guy, you know, just amazing, transformative story. Uh, when I first met him, he was a bouncer at a strip club. And uh, he was just standing outside the strip club. We had taken some students to, I think we took taken them to a, uh, a museum. And we were just walking uh, back. I'm glad uh, you said uh, museum, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> He, he was just standing out on the sidewalk. So yeah, we, we were not inside of, but anyway, so happened to see he had a tattoo in his arm and it was, uh, I, I, th I believe it was a Marine Corps uh, insignia. So it's pretty hard not to notice it. I said, Hey man, how you doing? You know, introduced myself and uh, long story short, learned that he was, uh, he was homeless. He was an alcoholic. His parents had kicked him out and he was just, he was lost. And so I said, Hey, uh, come on in here. Um, let's help you out. Let's get you, let's get you, uh, let's get you on the path where you want to go. And I said, you know what, uh, I get, uh, you know, you're, you're going to have to go through some detox, but I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to help you. And so at the end of his journey, so we went through some career assessment stuff. We, we tried to figure out what he valued in his life, what he was here for. Right. And, and at the, you know, at through, through our program, he stuck with it. He stuck with it, and then we got him into a school that was focused on vocational art stuff. So he started making high-end furniture, uh, really nice stuff. Um, so he, he got trained on that, went through an 18-month program, uh, and one chair, uh, if he, you know, depending on, on, on who wanted it, but essentially he could sell a chair for about 2,500 bucks. So we're talking really nice stuff. Right. And, so, so that helped him to grow in his confidence and who he was, that he had value, as well as it helped him to probably work out some anger and some other issues that he might have been dealing with. And he could take that and also then work with his parents and work with other folks. And so he graduated from that program. He got, he, he repaired his relationship with his parents. And then he, he got back with his, his girlfriend at the time and married and job and all that sort of stuff. That was the stuff that I really, really enjoyed. It, it was a lot of fun. It was so rewarding to get to see someone that was down and out in, in basically every way possible, um, but yet there's still hope. And uh, we provided that uh, through just holistic services basically and tapping into who he was in a, as a person. Wow. I mean, wow, very powerful, I, very powerful program overall. But I mean, this this one case alone, uh, I mean, it's just an amazing story, an amazing story and a, and a testament to, to the work that you were doing right out of the military. Amazing. So how how has this led you to pursue? A so you mentioned a few things and I'm, I'm baiting you with this because, yeah. you know, I heard those key words curriculum development, uh, you know, working with faculty assessments. And so uh, I, I, I want the listeners to understand this connection. So you're doing this and now you're, you're currently working on a doctorate in education where you've got to be the master of curriculum and development of assessment, you know, and all these things. So, so how did that bridge form between these two periods in your life? Yeah, good question. Yeah, nice, nice uh, transition there. Nice uh, bridge. Uh, yeah. So essentially, um, one of the th one of the things that I had to learn was when managing, when directing one of these programs, is we we had to be accountable to the federal government. We had to send them metrics, essentially. Um, so so when doing that, I learned the value of data. I learned to understand outcome measures. And I, I also started to learn that it wasn't just, oh, I have this, this idea. It must be a great idea. It was really starting to understand and recognizing um, that by collecting and analyzing data, I could start to see trends. I could start to see what worked and what didn't work. It wasn't just my gut. It wasn't just a great idea. It was actually something you could measure, 
scientifically prove that this works. Right. I'd never done that before. I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, never had that, um, uh, training, uh, undergrad or, you know, graduate programs necessarily. I had a, I, an idea about it, but essentially I, I got to, to really work in and out with logic models. And so that really kind of, uh, uh, piqued my interest and, and, uh, reinforced that I, you know, I might be able to do, you know, more education. I never considered myself an academic. I never considered myself that intelligent. You know, I was, I was relatively intelligent, but, you know, I was never the, 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 the best student in the world. So I think it, but by the time I had a little bit of that experience, um, it, it really opened my eyes to say, you know, I, I have more educational benefits and I, I started working with folks that had their PhDs. And I said, well, if they got it and they're doing all this cool stuff, maybe I should think about doing that as well. So that's, that's uh, really kind of piqued my interest. And it took me a couple of years. I explored like a, a PsyD program and uh, just uh, it wasn't the right time or the right place. But essentially, I, I found something that, uh, that worked. It was a... It was an EDD program. It was a, a newer program that had just started in the Boston area. Classes were on nights or weekends, all weekend long. It flipped a uh, classroom model where I could do coursework at night, uh, just read a bunch and, and really integrate in what I was doing day in and day out, working with vets into, into my research. I said, what a, what a great way to keep sharpening my saw and giving back to the men and women that have served, but then also learn a lot along the way. Um, uh, I, it just kind of it just kind of fell into place. It was it was it was very fortuitous. I love that. Absolutely love that. So, tell us now about your research and how your experience in the military transitioning into civilian life, you know, pursuing this education and how, how does all this inform what you are currently researching? Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, oftentimes you end up researching your own lived experience, right? So <clears throat> for me, so that the title of my, my dissertation is acculturation and career development needs of undergraduate veterans. And so, uh, because you know, directing an upward bound is really focused on undergrad vets. I saw uh, some of the career development needs uh, that uh, the acculturation piece came later, and I'll, I'll talk about that uh, in, in a few minutes. But essentially, um, I, I happened to run across uh, 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 someone that I was uh, significantly impacted by. Uh, he worked at uh, uh, Boston University. Uh, Dr. Solberg is his name, and and he his work is specifically focused on career uh, career development of of young folks, even down into uh, middle school and junior high. And what the evidence showed is that essentially, even getting folks at that young age uh, clarity on what they might want to do as they get older into adulthood, it has a significant difference on decisions they make, specifically when it comes to how well they do in, in classes. Do they take certain classes in high school, math specifically, and how much math do they take? And so I said, oh, that's, that's really interesting because I saw a lot of guys, men and women really shy away from taking math because they probably hadn't taken math for a long time. Right. And what I, what I knew is, you know, as adults, we tend to talk a lot more than we do math. That's just the nature of the beast. And so we get uh, mid to late twenties and our math skills sort of disintegrate unless we use them for our jobs and folks coming out of the military, oftentimes they're not doing math all the time. And so th there's math. I saw math phobia I, I, and, and all of those sorts of things, as well as the disconnect, like what can I do with math? Yeah, right. 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 And, and they just want to do again, back to the kind of just getting, getting through college quick. If they had to take remedial mathematics and they, they saw that they were two or three layers deep in, in developmental courses, they, they tried to find 
And I give them credit. They're, they're, they're trying to hustle. They're going to find any program doesn't have math. They're taking that program. And so really trying to focus in on, okay, that's great. But you know, the secret is the more math is involved in a program, the higher the wages are going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. Right. So it's like, you just, just hitting them with some of those, some of those little tidbits along the way to say, Hey, I get it. You might not be great at it, or you've lost some of the edge you had, but let's hit the books and we can teach you how to do math. And we'd, I'd actually do geometry by, uh, uh, doing land navigation, just connecting it up to things that people knew. Just say, okay, you know how to do land now, so let's do some geometrical stuff, and and then let's go back to the formulas. And so it was just a way of uh, showing them something familiar, and then using some different language. Uh, essentially, really, it wasn't it wasn't more than that. Just de demystifying it and making it less intimidating for them. Excellent. Excellent. An excellent approach, right? We all need context, right? We all have to be comfortable to learn. We all need context to learn some of us more than others. But, uh, but yeah, this, this is, this is a perfect way to start. And that's just awesome. So Michael, tell us too about this part of your research that you mentioned uh, with specifically when, when you use the word enculturation, can you talk to the listeners about that? Yeah. Yeah, thanks for bringing that back up. So, so acculturation, essentially it's defined as assimilation to a different culture and typically a dominant culture, right? So we know, we see it, right? We're, we're military folks, we're, we're a small group, right? We're small, but we're mighty. And uh, oftentimes uh, our culture is, is significantly different in, in good ways and, and uh, just unique ways. And so the process of acculturation tends to impact social and psychological well-being. So we know about stress, right? We know about PTSD, but what we don't really talk about is acculturation stress. And so that, that stress um, is dependent on the type or the strategy. So acculturation, there's typically th uh, 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 four strategies people take. They assimilate, meaning they just say, I'm taking all of my new culture. They separate. They do some integration or they marginalize. And so essentially that marginalization is to say that culture is terrible. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And you might see people in one of those four boxes or categories. So I, I ran across uh, a, a few studies associated with uh, acculturation stress. And I said, oh, you know, this is interesting. And I happen to be working with a team of researchers uh, in Vision One, which is New England. And uh, th these are clinical researchers. And I just asked this offhandedly. One of them is, is on my, my uh, dissertation committee. Shout out to Lisa. You're awesome. Thank you for all your help. Uh, but essentially, um, I, I asked the question of the group or, or maybe of a few individuals. And I said, do you guys measure acculturation stress as individuals transition? Because, you know, there's a lot of folks that work in the VA that do that work and they do great work. And I just asked, you know, do, do you measure that? Or do you ask folks about this? Do you have them fill out a, a survey or inventory? And they said, no. And that to me, the light bulb clicked and said, oh, you know, that is really interesting. And it wasn't that I, I felt that they weren't doing their jobs, but rather to say, this was a gap. This was a gap in um, practice. And maybe it's a gap in literature. And when I looked into it, I didn't really see a whole lot there. Um, I didn't see any, any research there focused on acculturation stress and, and, and veterans. So it, it just sort of clicked that, you know what? This is an area that I can explore. Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's nothing there whatsoever. But uh, I, I needed to dig down that rabbit hole and go down that rabbit hole. That's kind of where I am. I mean, that is extremely interesting. So, so my experience in 2000 and, uh, 2011, when I started looking at some things, I started thinking about intercultural competencies when that was being talked about, because my background is, is in world language studies. And so I, I was really interested in kind of that space where world language and gaining some culture meet. And then, you know, after reading a whole bunch of articles and thinking about this, I was like, this is exactly what happens with military people. 
you know, uh, people complain when we go and, and get a job that there's all these acronyms and uh, we're using words and other acronyms that there's, they have no reference for. And, uh, you know, there's a certain lifestyle or aspects of that. So that really got me interested in what are these, how can we bridge this gap interculturally, but also what are some of the strengths, you know, veterans have. Um, I think what you're doing is extremely interesting because, you know, no one is talking about that stress and those effects, but everybody that you just, every reaction, not everybody, but every reaction that you talked about, uh, I could put a face to that situation, you know, um, we have those veterans who completely reject everything and don't want to identify. And, you know, that's cool, but that's how they're, that's how they're expressing the stress, right? Uh, we have those that go the opposite way and that are over the top, you know, and, and still like walk around in camouflage every day. Uh, so it's really interesting to see all those in between and that you've labeled it and that, you know, you can see that it's a part of this minority population returning back. And when I say returning, that's very problematic because oftentimes it's a different time. It's a different space. You know, you've, you've had a whole different set of experiences. So while someone's returning back to civil society, it's never the same civil society. So that's very interesting for people to know about and to be thinking about and definitely for you to be studying. Yeah, and, and, and just what you're talking about, and I haven't read your, I, 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 I'm aware of your topic, but I have not read your dissertation. I will, for sure. I'm just kind of in the, in the throes of my own, but you don't want cultural, to. You don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> cultural competency, yeah, it's right there. So essentially the way you can think about it, right? So language that we use, um, what we wear, you know, um, the, the right, um, right. style of dress, humor, humor is a big part of it. Military humor is a little bit different, right? right? <laughs> um, but also stereotypes. So that's a big part of it. Do we feel, do, do we uh, perceive that folks are stereotyping us uh, and vice versa? And so, and there, there's other, but th those are the, some key things that just, when I, when I, so I borrowed from RASI, which is a Riverside Acculturation Stress Inventory, and that looked at Asian Americans, and essentially, if you, maybe their their language varies a little bit different than our own, but it still very much fits. You know, when when we would do um, you know um, green zone training at Suffolk University, you know, we we might um, open up a box of MREs for folks to eat, and they'd look at us kind of strange. You know, so food food is a huge part of any culture. Yeah, absolutely. And sharing food and. I don't know about you, but I don't want to share an MRE with anybody. <laughs> but I might but, trade. But those, I might make right. some trades from. <laughs> yeah, right, right. What was your favorite? Did you have a favorite? Mm, no, I, I don't think I had a favorite. I, yeah. I did have a favorite technique, though. Uh, it was to save up all the hot sauce that I could save up, like in a week's time, and then save them for one and just drown it. Nice, nice. <laughs> Great strategy. And, and then some of the ones that I tend to like early tuna and noodles because no one else liked them. So I, if I was in the mood for it, I could always have it because no one else wanted it. Was, there you go. It was weird. They're all horrible though. They are. You're right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so essentially, yeah. So uh, acculturation stress is a big part of it. Uh, the other, the other measures are the things I'm, I'm interested in mostly because I know it impacts how vets do in the college is sense of belonging. So in, in my, you know, in my institutional research hat and in my role, we, we look at sense of belonging as a significant factor. So it's, it's one of the strongest factors when it comes to persistence and graduation. And so um, essentially looking at that feeling of security and support, you know, are we accepted? And that can be by our peers, other classmates, or, or it can be by uh, the faculty members, uh, the instructors, or, or both. And so um, I did a pilot project, um, you know, before I even got into this, and it was with the Massachusetts Department of uh, Higher Education. 
and for a, um, an internship. And they allowed me to, to collect data, essentially public you know, data sets of, of those uh, vets that were in two-year and four-year um, public higher education. So community colleges, um, their state colleges, and then the UMass system. And what I found in there, you know, I sort of, sort of asked the question, how are vets doing? And, and so a few things I found, um, the first is uh, when it comes to comparisons, so apples to apples, I did, uh, you know, first time degree seeking undergraduates and vets compared to non. I found that uh, we vets uh, had a higher tendency to enroll in community colleges. Not surprising, but um, uh, we might know that uh, you have a harder time graduating from community colleges than four-year institutions or things. It's just more to navigate, more barriers in the way. Also found that uh, vets had a, a higher rate of being enrolled in developmental courses. So again, there's going to be some difficulty getting to graduation at that point. And, and those gaps between vets and non-vets was significant in a given year. So Again, this is a couple of years old, but in one given year, the gap was about 20% uh, higher in, um, um, enrollments in uh, developmental courses. So those things sort of reinforced some ideas that I had uh, from the populations that I worked with. But in addition to that, started to look at things like first year to second year retention rates and as well as um, credit completion. Smaller gaps, but they did exist. And so that really kept me going on this journey to say, you know, I, I don't know that it's necessarily uh, veterans that, have, that uh, could do better, but possibly we need to look at what are some systemic institutional uh, or, or organizational policy practice sort of barriers that are in place? What are some things that we can help to um, provide the right supports at the right time. Specifically, how do, we, how do we encourage our student veterans to feel like they belong in a college campus? And so looking at that literature, and, and you probably know some of this stuff, but essentially, if you think about women in STEM, if you look at literature around women in STEM, um, you know, there, it was kind of sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, folks said, well, women don't want to be in STEM. And, and so you don't see a lot of them in STEM. When you dug into it, essentially, women, even though they, they were very good at it, they didn't feel like they belonged. And so once they started to feel like they belonged, basically because there was faculty that looked like them, uh, there was folks that used messaging that was more inclusive, those sorts of things, um, was significant. Um, and some stuff, a sense of belonging when it comes to vets, oftentimes, uh, because we're a unique culture, um, sometimes, so literature talks about this, folks tend to think about veterans, military folks as heroes, which is great. There's a lot of heroes out there, um, but they, we, they tend to hold on to that uh, unique or um, just uh, mono identity. Once a hero, always a hero, which is great. But sometimes that can be a little bit detrimental to us. And what I mean by that is um, if you're considered a hero, uh, you're invincible, you may not have a lot of feelings and you may not be good at interacting with people. I'm generalizing and I'm talking about the literature. And so what that tends to mean then is when individuals come back from service and transition back, Unintentionally, I think, for the most part, we're encouraged to go back into jobs and occupations that are less feeling oriented, less uh, uh, um, uh, focused on those sorts of roles, which is, um, it, may, it may, may not necessarily be where we want to be, and it may not necessarily be where we need to be, if that makes sense. So if you think about high stress jobs um, that are, are low feeling sort of oriented, 
um, if we're if we're steering folks that have been through a lot of difficulties and a lot of stress, that might not be the best situation for them. So, anyways, so there's there's a lot there, but it's essentially um, allowing for and encouraging folks to explore, encouraging them to think about who are they as a person, what is their identity outside of the military, and and uh, and then kind of going from there. So. Wow. Really, really interesting, really important research, really important research. And, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I think we, we probably should have you on at a later date, maybe after you defend that research, we can talk about your findings because I, I mean, I could go on, I'm sure you could go on for another hour about uh, the things we see that, that make this research so important, you know, and I'm sure some things that are definitely validating your, your findings. Um, so tell us, Michael, what, what looms on the future for you, sir? What can we expect to see from Michael Smith in the, in the near future? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say what looms on the future. So I need to, uh, I need to finish and defend. And so I, you know, I could use some help, which is something we're not necessarily custom asking for as vets. And one thing I could use help with is just getting more individuals to complete a confidential and anonymous uh, survey that asks some of these questions. It takes about 10 to 12 minutes, depending. Um, so uh, I could really use help with that. So if uh, I, can, I can connect with folks, or if you want to connect with me, I can share my contact information with Ernest here. And uh, essentially, um, uh, the, the sooner that I can gather the, the critical mass of responses I'm looking for, about 200 responses, the sooner I can do analysis and the sooner I can defend and, and, and start to do some more valuable work. So that's where I'm at right now, focus on the present. And uh, once I get that done, I can, I can also then focus on the future. Very awesome. Very awesome. So right, we caught you right in the middle of the, the quantitative hustle. Yep, that's it. <laughs> you and, uh, and the system coding all that. Yep. There you go. But you know what, when you hit that last code in, uh, it, you're, you're going to have a great feeling. So I'm excited for you to, to pass, you know, pass that point. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've, we've just had a great conversation with Michael Smith. And as uh, he stated, he's needing some help with gathering some data. So we will link his information when we post this. Uh, we'll also have a link on our Podbean platform. So you can follow up and participate and help Michael get uh, good quality data. So Michael, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And we'll have to do it again. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.